Larry Osborne writes, We live in a world gone haywire. Our moral fabric seems to be decaying at breakneck speed. Things that were once shamefully hidden are now publicly celebrated. The previously unimaginable has become commonplace. In a few short decades, our culture's response to Bible-believing Christians has gone from grudging respect to a patronizing pat on the head to a marginalizing indifference to outright hostility. It's mind-boggling and a bit scary. A lot of us feel what Osborne is saying. Every day we face more choices and challenges than we know what to do with. Do we fight the culture wars? Do we flee the culture? Do we keep our heads down and carry on? Do we wring our hands and wait it out? Or do we just give in and give up? The answers aren't easy and almost never simple, but we aren't on our own. The book of Daniel can help. In this ancient book, God is leading, guiding, and speaking to his exiled church in a culture that looks an awful lot like ours. Living well in a world gone wrong is hard, really hard. As Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But Jesus also said this, take heart, I have overcome the world. Welcome to exile, it's gonna be okay. If I haven't met you yet, I'm Rob. I get to serve as one of the pastors. Uh, There was a point at which we talked about upgrading the uh, projector and the screen, but we usually don't have any sunshine here, so we figured it wasn't worth it. So I'll try to read the quotes today slowly. Hopefully you can see. Okay. Um, We're going to be in Daniel chapter 1. By God's grace, get through verse 7. Before we open his word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is an incredible gift and privilege that you would speak to us. And so as we come to your word, might you grant us a, a hunger that we would, we would know, that our souls would have a, a keen sense of, of how famished they are apart from hearing from your word and that would come to us uh, uh, to, to revive us and direct us and to guide us and to challenge us and to stir us and ultimately help us to, to flourish. Father, grant us a humility that we would... Bend our knees beneath your word that it would be um, not just clear to us, but it would be authoritative. And God, as we gather as a community, we want to be stirred, we want to be directed, we want our lives to be refined, we want to see our relationships grow and develop, we want to see our our self-awareness and our identity um, um, uh, settled, settled in our souls. But God, what we need more than anything else as we gather is this one thing, that we would become more impressed with Jesus Christ. Would you make him loud, I pray, in this sermon, in our songs, in our prayers, and in this upcoming week? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you're able, would you uh, please stand for the reading of God's word? Daniel chapter 1. Read from verse 1 down to verse 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family 
and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Feel free to, uh, to grab a seat. To catch you up to speed, we started Daniel last week and really just hit those first two verses. And this global superpower of Babylon came into Jerusalem, besieged the city, and took over, and then carried off a number of, of, of God's people into this, this distant land, modern-day Iraq, and, and they're, they're, they're living as exiles. In this text, we see that one of the strategies here was to grab uh, some of the youth. These are likely teenagers, maybe into their 20s, but uh, out of nobility and royalty, those that, that, that looked a certain way, those that, that had, uh, had sharp minds, and, and they're going to go through this process of what we see here in verses 3 through 7 is this Babylonian strategy for assimilation. How do we help these, these people from Jerusalem now begin to think and act in behave as if they are from Babylon. And we see at least three different tactics or three areas of focus that they use. They, they, they used education. So we see it multiple times that they're going to do the instruction of the, the Chaldeans, the learning. They're going to they're educate them in, in the ways of, of Babylon. What are its, its legends? What are its cultural narratives? What is its, its moral approaches? What is ethical? How, how are we supposed to think? Cultural issues, how are we to, to think and act like Babylonians' lifestyle? We see this in this reference to, to, to the, the, the food that the king ate was given to them. The wine that he drank was given to them. And in many, many ways, what Babylon is doing is saying, here's what the good life looks like, and here's how you get it. Notice that it comes from the king's hand, a way of saying, here, I'm going to provide for you, but notice who is providing. Throughout Daniel, we'll see this sort of two-pronged strategy with this. It's sort of like carrot and stick. It's like if you do all the right stuff, if you go along with it, you get rewarded. If you resist, you might get smashed. Kind of the, the promises and the persecution. I would suggest to you that it's the same now. You want a promotion? You want to excel in school? You want to be culturally accepted? And the culture will say, if you want those things, here's who you have to be, here's how you have to act, here's how you have to believe, and here's what you must not believe. And so I just sometimes if, if you're here and you're a Christ follower, sometimes you can do you can hold to the tenets of your faith and, and still do those things. We see Daniel at times in obscurity in the kingdom, at times being greatly persecuted, and at times being the third in the kingdom. But there's other times where you can't. So we see education, we see lifestyle, we also see identity. In verses 6 and 7, there's these names that were given, each of the, the four names of Daniel and his friends were each names that were related to God, the God that they worshiped, the God that they loved, the God that they, 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 they lived for. 
And then they're given new names after these Babylonian gods, after foreign gods, after pagan gods. So this identity, the Babylonian strategy is to re-educate and to try to give a new vision of a good life and then to rename. So you question, like, who am I and whose am I? And the cumulative effect of, of all of this reprogramming is to develop what we call a, a worldview, a way in which to see and process the world. Um, James Anderson talks about worldview like this. He said, worldviews play a central and defining role in our lives. They shape what we believe and what we're willing to believe, how we interpret our experiences, how we behave in response to those experiences, and how we relate to others. Our thoughts and our actions are conditioned by our worldviews. What we think is right, what we think is wrong, what we think is worth fighting for, what we think doesn't matter, what we're living for is shaped by this lens that we have called a worldview. And, and really, it's the same strategy now. It always is. We're, we're being taught what to believe all the time. I thought about before uh, giving this illustration application, it would be appropriate since it's Halloween, but I was thinking of like dressing up and, and, and uh, have you ever seen like a dog trainer, like what someone wears to like train like canines where they're wrapped in, in just massive amounts of padding? And I kind of feel like I need one of those for what I'm about to say. Okay, and I told the first service, my, 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 I imagine I will offend every single person here at some point in this sermon. Welcome to Redeemer. If I don't offend you now, just wait. It will come in the next 30 minutes or so. All right, so here we go. We're being taught what to think and believe all the time. As you've driven around, I imagine you've noticed a number of bumper stickers, posters, of yard signs. When you notice these statements that are collected together, these collection of pithy statements that, that are throughout our community, I wonder if you've ever thought of them this way. What you're seeing is a creed. You're seeing a collected statement of belief. I recently read a book called The Secular Creed from Rebecca McLaughlin, where she basically makes that case. And it's a very interesting read. Um, you know, if you read it, eat the meat and spit the bones, but very interesting read. And in it, she tackles five common cultural claims that put together formulate a sort of creed, a set of principles. Culture's way of saying this is what good and right people believe, and to be seen as good and right, you must believe them too. And, and I started thinking about this. An adherence to a creed is nothing short of being culturally orthodox. And so to disbelieve the creed would be to, to be a heretic. Let me give you the creed that she takes. In this house, we'll put this up, we believe that black lives matter, love is love, gay rights are civil rights, women's rights are human rights, Transgender women or women. I imagine that lands on everyone in this room in a unique way. And I know in this room we do not all agree on the same thing. What do you do with that? This is the culture's creed. What do, what do, you, what do, you, what do you do with this? All these statements mashed together. 
Do you have to believe them all? Can you believe some of them? Can you believe what maybe the sentiment behind the statement is? But maybe not believe all the ways it's utilized or attached to culture or different institutions or objectives? In McLaughlin's book, she, she presents kind of different approaches that people have taken, different Christians have taken with statements like this. She says, some want to take a mallet and just, just thrash the sign. She would suggest taking a marker and thoughtfully and compassionately and winsomely and biblically engaging with these claims. But there's more than secular creeds. In this reprogram, what we also have is cultural catechesis, this big word that means how you get trained up in something. In the text here, they're going to stand in the king's palace. The whole goal that the Babylonians are doing is taking this group of, of promising young individuals and to reprogram and reshape them that in three years they might be useful to this new kingdom. They're doing that with their belief statements, and they're doing it through, through, uh, through, through being in this, this, the king's palace, the food that the king ate, the wine that he drank. They're going to be educated for three years. All of this constituted a very immersive experience. They were being educated and taught and trained, and they were around an environment that held those values. They were being catechized. And we are too, all the time. Mark Sayers, to give you an example of this, Mark Sayers in his book, Reappearing Church, says it like this. The whole of contemporary Western culture, from the structure of our malls and cities to the very fabric of the internet and social media platforms are ideologies that shape us toward a vision not rooted in the eternal, but in the unlimited freedom and pleasure of the individual. Now, that's not a problem as long as it's right. But is it right? We're being shaped constantly by our cultures. It's happening everywhere. Education, media, corporate America, yard signs, entertainment, everywhere. Everywhere. And here's what happens apart from having this worldview tethered to the Bible is what you'll end up with is another W word, worldliness. David Wells, in his book, Losing Our Virtue, says it like this, worldliness is the system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and his truth from the world. And cue in on this next line. This is a massive, this is a monster of a line. And which makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. It's any way of seeing the world that makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. That's what was happening is they're being reprogrammed and trained and taught. They're, they're being given secular creeds and this cultural catechism that's, 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 that's taking what used to be considered righteous and making it look strange and what they would have seen as offensive and making that look honorable and good and right. My uh, oldest daughter's off at, at college. Tinder is normal. And that environment, it's normalized. The thought of long-term, committed, monogamous, marital intimacy is strange. Twelve beers is normal. 
She's at Wazoo. So she's probably like 18 beers is normal. Two beers is strange. Binge watching Netflix every night for hours and hours and hours until you're sleep deprived and cranky is normal. Turn off the TV to go serve your city. It's maybe admirable, but strange. It's parents saying, no, I love you so much that you're not going to wear that. Your body is so precious. It looks, it looks strange. Lying to get ahead. In politics, in careers, in school, it's normal. Being honest, even when it's costly, is strange. Using your authority, wherever that is, for the good of others, is strange. But using it to serve yourself is normal. Kevin Young says, he says, here's the reality facing every Christian in the West. The money, power, and prestige of the mainstream media, big time sports, big business, big tech, and almost all the institutions of education and entertainment are invested in making sin look normal. Make no mistake, no matter how good your church, no matter how strong your family, no matter how gospel-centered your Christian school, your home school, whatever, if your children and grandchildren are even remotely engaged with the contemporary culture, and they are, I heard an interesting insight that this is basically Babylon in your pocket. We're all engaged. They are being taught by a thousand memes and messages every week to pay homage to. And then he, he fills in the blank. I left it blank for you because I would encourage you to, to think how all of these forces are at work to make sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. And the reason we care is it doesn't tend towards humans flourishing. God be in honor. Take this week and pay attention to the culture, the messages, the things that are being said. What's being normalized and what's being shown off is strange. We're being catechized all the time, and sometimes this catechism works. That was the hope in, in Daniel 1, that the Babylonian strategy of re-education and, and, and lifestyle and renaming, that it would do is it would assimilate them into the culture so they might adopt a different worldview. I read an article in The Atlantic on Monday. Someone in the church sent it to me Tuesday. Um, it showed up in my inbox in a... Uh, a newsletter that I subscribed to on Friday, and so I just was really paying attention to it, and it was around the theme of how churches are splintering because of the cultural and political forces that are, that are co-opting it. Um, as I read the article, I was really thankful to God for a couple of things, that I was really thankful that, that we as a community have not experienced a lot of what was said in this article. We've experienced some, but not much of it. Um, but I was also taken back because the churches that they had highlighted, they're going through some, some very divisive, difficult things, are, are Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, well-established, well-led churches, and they are fracturing Peter Wenner in the, the Atlantic, the, the article is the evangelical church is breaking apart, says this, the root of the discord lies in the fact that many Christians have embraced the worst aspects of our culture and our politics. When the Christian faith is politicized, churches become repositories not of grace but of grievances. Places where tribal identities are reinforced, where fears are nurtured and where aggression and nastiness 
are sacralized. The result is not only wounding the nation, it's having a devastating impact on the Christian faith. Is the prophetic voice of the church things like this? Would we characterize the tenor of it as love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Give you a couple other examples of what happens when, when we're catechized to the cultural values of meanness and nastiness and anger. Beth Moore, incredible Bible teacher, she tweeted this out recently. She says, a guy memorizing Philippians 2, 1 through 18 with us told me he was getting so much from it. If you don't know that text, it's a text about the humility of Christ that considers others more significant. Look at Jesus who, who, didn't take, who, who, who took the form of a servant and gave his life for those who would trust. This is a beautiful, gentle, tender, Christ-exalting passage. And so this guy memorizing this text, and he's getting so much from it, and he read it to a group recently. He got called a liberal. First service, someone laughed and someone gasped. You're just quiet. Russell Moore, not related to Beth, but another great thinker and Christian leader, he said this. He says, a pastor told me he cited, turn the other cheek, and dealt with an outraged guy asking him why he was spouting liberal propaganda. How's that happen? Well, this is how. We live in a host culture. So we shouldn't be surprised when we sometimes adopt the values of that host culture, when it begins to impact and change the lenses in which we see the world and the operations of our heart. So what do we do? So what we do with this is we're, we're in this place of, of, of being re-educated and new identities and this is swarming around us all the time in creeds and catechisms of our culture. What do we do? I found this blog post recently that was really helpful and it Matt Smethers to um, dad. He's talking about his kids. As they began to grow up, they started playing this game when they would watch movies. They started playing the game Spot the Lie. So they would watch a movie and it was, okay, do you, do you see what might be off about that? And so his kids, they would, you know, pause it at some point, and every kid in here whose parent does that is like, that's a terrible game. We hate it when you stop the movie midway through, and then don't, don't, don't get mad at me. I, I really love this movie, but the, the illustration he used that his five-year-old spotted the lie was the movie Trolls, and, you know, I love that movie. I think it's fantastic. Soundtrack is great. I can't help but dance and just sing and get geeky, but this little girl was like, wait a second. The premise of the movie is that happiness comes from inside of us. That's not what Jesus says. You spot the lie. I remember the first time this kind of hit me. It was in uh, 1998, so all my illustrations are from before half of the people in this room were alive today. Um, 1998 in the movie, anyone see the movie, You've Got Mail? Okay, three of you, excellent. This will really land like a, like a bag of feathers on you. All right. The movie, You've Got Mail. I remember watching this movie. So the premise of this movie was that people used to email each other. That's how they would talk and have conversations. They didn't like slide into each other's DMs. I think that's what, what people do now. And so they're on the Insta Twitter and they slide into their DMs and they talk to each other. But back then, there was these chat rooms and you would meet someone and then you might send them an email. And so in the movie, You've Got Mail, you have, there's two couples and I don't remember if they're, they're married, but they're at least significantly dating. They're exclusive exclusively together. They're living with one another. And in this movie, one of, the, one of the women meets a guy who's in this other relationship, and they begin to email each other. And they wake up, and they're so excited to hear. They're like, ding, you've got mail. 
Remember one scene, this, this guy's reading this, this email from this person from another relationship, and they're talking, and, and they're engaged, and his, his, his wife or his girlfriend's in the room, and he's kind of hiding the screen, and you're watching this movie, and as the movie goes along, the whole idea is that people that are in significant relationships, like what I began to do is I found myself cheering that they would actually get together and leave the people they were with, and I was like, what am I doing? Who knew that You Got Mail was like the most corrupting movie that ever came out? Because we're being catechized all the time. Matt Smethers talks about this. He says, the soundtrack of our age. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Find yourself. Love yourself. Express yourself. Believe in yourself. We inhabit a secular age in which transcendence has been thinned out and trivialized and the sovereign self thrust to the center of the stage. Nowadays, pilgrimages to find truth, beauty, and goodness don't require a plane ticket just to mirror. And he's not trying to be mean. Listen to his next point of why he's bringing this up. Because this is what our culture is teaching. He says this, this is an exhausting way to live. I don't have the wisdom to define my destiny nor the fortitude to fulfill it without making a royal wreck of my life and inflicting untold pain on those I love most. I am underqualified to explore my heart and steer my life. I can barely reply to emails. These cultural mantras are well-intentioned. Some contain elements of truth. Nevertheless, it must be said, the Bible simply doesn't talk this way. In fact, it's striking just how differently Scripture employs the same words. The world, follow your heart. Jesus, follow me. The world, discover yourself. Jesus, deny yourself. The world, believe in yourself. Jesus, believe in me. All the time, we're being taught. All the time. And the question we have to ask is, what are we to believe? What are we to do? And so I want to give you a couple of handles. What do, what, do, what, do, what do you do with this? If you're trying to learn how to live well, if you're trying to learn how to flourish and how to help others flourish in the midst of this exile, what do you do? First thing I'd say this is you got to embrace complexity. You got to embrace this is just complex. Okay, do I homeschool? Do I private school? Or do I public school my kids? Yes. <laughs> you can't see. You're at the first service. You can't give the punchline of the joke. Are you going to have to come up and preach the rest of the sermon? <laughs> I'm just joking. But he is right. See, he said it. Email him. All right. <laughs> yes. Let me give you another one. Do I resist or accept Government oversight into my life. Yes. Ooh. Told you I'm going to offend you. Do I vote red or blue? You all say, I didn't say it. All right. Do I speak up or do I stay quiet? Yes. Do I stay in Washington, or do I move to Idaho? <laughs> yes. It's interesting. I read an article recently on, on these migrations that are happening. 
for people from blue states to red states and red states to blue states because of ideological convictions? And is it right, wrong? What should you do? Yes, that's the answer. You got to embrace the complexity. You got to embrace the complexity. It's a complex world. What do you do with the yard sign? With real people, with real stories, with real lives. Or we could take our cue from Kenny Rogers. Um, I was listening to this song on repeat recently, the song The Gambler. The song The Gambler, and the, the history of this song, I hadn't known the history of it, like the narrative of the story, but it's a scene of two guys in a, on a train car, and they're riding through the night, and, and there's the, the older guy and the younger guy, and the old guy's this old, wise sage, and he says, he looks at the young guy and says, I'm going to give you some advice. I'm gonna, if, you, if you're going to play this game of life, you've got to learn to play it right. And so I thought there'd be no better way of drilling in the point of this sermon than through song. And so Isaac will cue up the gambler. So in this complex world, we listen to the gambler. All right. And somewhere in the darkness, you can sing along. The gambler, you know he I mean. broke even. But in his final word, wait for the, the build-up. There we go. Get ready. This I is the punchline of the sermon. You got no when to hold them. No when to fold them. Come on, you know no it. Three of you do. And no when to run. I don't know you how this next part fits with the sermon. I have no idea. So just wait. I don't know about the kind of money. I'm sure there's a way it applies to exiles. But we just got to reinforce the message. You got no when to hold them. Right? I mean, it's a... No when to fold them. No Thanks, Isaac. I know. Weirdest sermon ever. But that's the point. It's a complicated world. What do you do with it? There's all this stuff being said and taught. What do you do with it? Throughout Daniel, what you'll see is sometimes he rejects it. He says, that just does not square with what I know of God and what I know is good for people. There's other times he serves alongside of the culture. He's around fellow image bearers regardless of what they believe. There's other times where you simply receive the culture. See, this is God's good gift for all of us. And the truth that was spoken over there is, is, is true for all. There's other places where you see he tries to change it through direct involvement. You'll see all of those approaches, every single one of them. We, we, we need to embrace complexity. But to be able to know what to hold, what to lay down, what to keep, when to, to run, to know what to receive, what to redeem, what to reject, we have to know something else. Remember, this passage is all about relocation and re-education, reprogram to develop a worldview. So what we have to do is develop then a worldview. We need to take what is a Babylonian worldview and we need to adopt a biblical worldview. The way Wells talked about it, that this sort of like, how do we make sin look normal and righteous look strange? He pointed out two things that get, have to get jettisoned to make that happen, and it's these things, truth and God. So if we're going to develop a, Babel, a biblical worldview, we have to do this, get, back, get truth and God. Again, James Anderson, worldview defined uh, or described, he says this, worldviews play a central and defining role in our lives. They shape what we believe. 
and what we're willing to believe, how we interpret our experiences, how we behave in response to those experiences, and how we relate to others. Our thoughts and our actions are conditioned by our worldviews. Worldviews, massive. What you believe, what you're predisposed to believe. It hits big questions that our culture is answering all the time. We just need to say, are they answering it best? What is real? Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? How should I live and why? What happens in the future? Those questions are worth taking time to to consider and ponder because your answers will greatly determine how you live and where you go. For Christians, here's where we get the answer. This is where we get it in the midst of a complicated world. This is where we get it. This is is worth doing whatever it takes to to investigate and, and study and learn because it's going to give you right answers to the biggest questions. The culture has creeds, so do we. The culture has catechisms, so do we, and we, we, we need to know them. And as this worldview gets formed, one of the things that happens is you, as you live in exile, as you begin to, to know what to hold and what to, to push away and what to keep and when to run. You, you know what to do with education and, and, and government and, and politics, and, and, and you, you, you know what to do with yard signs, and you, and you know what to do whether you should stay in Washington or move to Idaho. Here's the ultimate strategy of, or here's the ultimate goal of the Babylonian strategy beyond all the things it's to erase their God from their memory. And we actually see that in verses 6 and 7. We see the, the, the renaming that happens in verses 6 and 7. In verse 6, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Each of their names is a statement and reference point to their God. And then they're renamed in verse 7. They're given a new identity. And each of the, the, the renaming that takes place is they replace the part that's about their God with one of their own gods. What I think would be very helpful if we want to know how to live well, we need to know the truth of the Bible, but we need to know the God of the Bible. And I don't think it's by mistake that the beginning of Daniel in this book that's talking about exile and how do you flourish in a fierce and fractured and frustrating and floundering world that he gives us some statements about who he is for us to carry on our sojourn. We'll put these slides up. Daniel, his name, it means God is my judge. And I'll spend a little time unpacking each of these. I'll just give you the four, and then we'll just apply them. Hananiah, the Lord is gracious. Mishael, who is what God is. Azariah. The Lord helps. What I'll do is I'll take, I'll just pair the names up. Each name, two of the names have this, this L on the end of it, and two of them have kind of an off. The L references God, the, the A references Yahweh, still talking about God, but two different kind of de- descriptors. So I'll just pair them up. We'll take, we'll take these two names, Daniel and, and Mishael. God is my judge, and who is what God is? Who is like in Daniel, there's over 300 words related to uh, civil authority. King, kingdom, lords, rulers. This is a book about who is in power and who isn't. 
And Daniel's name clarifies who's truly in power. God is my judge. And when that title is used, that that reference point, it's not just saying he's judging what's righteous and unrighteous that will stand before his throne. That's all very true. But he's also the the God who raises leaders up and brings leaders down, saying above all the kings of the kingdoms, above all the rulers, above all the policymakers, above all the politicians, there is a God who reigns supreme. And we bring that truth into exile. Whatever it is that we see, we say, who is what God is? Mishael is talking about the greatness and the glory of God, and the answer to that is no one. Listen to these verses from Daniel. I won't read a ton of them, but chapter 2, verse 20, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Imagine what it's like to be brought into exile with that name ringing in your head. As you see pagan kings oppress your land and carry you off and the chaos and the confusion and the the worry that comes with it, at the end of the day, God is my king and there is no one like him. Do you know God like that? Chapter 4, verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. In verse 34 and following, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? What's amazing when we get to Daniel 4, you know the person that says that? It's a pagan king who got humbled. Do you know God like that? Because you're worried about the policies that are made and the decisions that are made. Daniel 7, 9 and following. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousand, thousand served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. God is my God is the judge. Who is like God? I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What do you have to be afraid of? What do we really have to worry about? Christ's kingdom will win. Do you know God like this? Your culture wants to defang your God. Wants to make him weightless and insignificant. But we see something in these other two words, and I'll end quickly with this. These other two words mean the Lord is gracious and the Lord helps. He's not just great and glorious and strong and sovereign. He's tender and present and with us. Got an email from someone in our church this last week. Uh, Sharing just as we started, Daniel prompted some things, and she uh, she 
So, you know, for the last few years, I've just been feeling more and more out of place in our culture, and the place where she works is, is a challenging place to, to be a Christ follower for sure. I know a number of places that you're in could be that, and a number of your friend groups can be that, and just, just culture in general, but she's just really hard, and, and, and this last June is just some... Something, some significant, something kind of significant happened. She's, she's driving home from work and, and just kind of weeping a little bit. And then she was like, it was just unmistakable. The phrase, the fiery furnace popped into her head. And so then she wrote this. She said, so I went home and I read from the book of Daniel for the first time in a long time and felt a deep acknowledgement that times have changed. I also remember the best part of the fiery furnace story, that the three men were not alone. There was a fourth with them. We're not going to get to that until Daniel chapter 3, but it's the story of three of Daniel's friends who, in faithfulness to God, because they will not bow their knees and deny their God, they get thrown into a furnace. And, and what happens in this scene is they're in the flames of this cultural uh, vengeance. There's a fourth figure that emerges. And that fourth figure ultimately points to the, to, to the graciousness and the help of God. It points to Christ Jesus coming and walking and being with us. And ultimately, it points to the story of the gospel, the, the meta-narrative of Christianity, the good news that makes Christianity actually good news is that God did not stay away from us, but that Christ Jesus left heaven to come into our exile, to bring himself into the flames of, of, of oppression and judgment and struggle and frustration. And then he went to a cross where he let the flames take his life that we might be set free. He got burned in our place. To tell us that the ultimate hope is that the fire won't win, but that Christ will. By his grace, by his intervention, by his activity. Knowing what to hold, what to reject, when to go with the culture, when to go against the culture, what to believe, how to act, it is hard and difficult and complicated and takes courage and wisdom and risk and time, but be all of that, here's what it takes, God. It takes God, his greatness and his graciousness and his glory and his goodness, and here's what you get as the people of God. You get God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 1 Chronicles 29, 11 says that you, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Free us from small thoughts of you. Free us from hard thoughts of you. Let us see you who are sovereign over all and a tender graciousness that knows no bounds in this sojourning until Christ you return. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As the band comes forward, we're going to respond as we do every single week as a church. And if you're new to Redeemer, um, we receive communion every single week, and we really see this as as really the, the pinnacle of our time together, because this is a time that we get to retell the story of the gospel, of what Christ Jesus has done, that he, that he came and lived the life that, that we were meant to live, and then he died the death that we deserved, and that through faith, in, and then three days later, he rose from the dead as a, as a down payment on the new creation that's coming. And, and, and the hope of Christianity is this, not that we would perform better, not that we would do better, that we would believe and trust in Christ. We need no 
other message to be louder for us as we go into this week as exiles. So as we go to this table with a little juice and a little wave for the juice representing the blood of Christ and this, this wave for representing the body of Christ given, we, what we are declaring is the fire won't win. What we're declaring is that, that, Christ is, that, that God is judged, but in his justice judged Christ in our place because he's gracious. So I want to invite anyone in this room to go to this table. The, the only barrier in our church, the only thing that would keep you from there is your own belief. So I'd invite you to to confess your need for Christ, to turn from trying to answer all these big life questions of who am I and how do I right myself and how do I secure my future, that is exhausting. Let Christ define those things. And then go to this table and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. The, the band will play for a few songs. You have time to prepare your hearts and go to the table as you feel led. Why? 